because the Lord is our shepherd, we can go to him in prayer. Would you join me as we do that together? Father God, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning. For you are God of gods and Lord of lords. In you, all things find their purpose and meaning. You are generous and benevolent towards us, your people. And it is in your generosity that we stand in awe, for you care for us. While we had not existed, you set your affection on us. While we were nothing, you gave your life to us. And where once we were your enemy, now we are your friends. Father, in your generosity, you care for us as your own children. We confess, Lord, that we sin. That sin is still a big part of our lives. And Lord, how easily we forget you. We forget that we have our hope and our belonging in you and what you have done. How, how quickly we pursue other pleasures to bring us joy. How quickly we go to others outside of you to satisfy our deepest desires. All that is done all, and all that does is leave us empty and wanting more. Give us a heart for you and a heart for the things that you have prescribed for us. May we find joy in you who has been generous towards us as your children. Lord, we thank you that in your generosity you've given us other partners, like-minded gospel-preaching churches in this world. Lord, we thank you and pray for Hope Church in Tacoma, Washington and Pastor Eric Lind. Lord, we thank you for their partnership in the NCN with us, and we pray that they would find their strength and encouragement in your word this morning. We pray that the elders there at Hope Church would be diligent to care for the church as they pray for them and teach the word. This morning, we are so very thankful also for what you have given us. We are grateful, Lord, for the success of our children's VBS this past week. Lord, for the faithful volunteers who helped put it together. Lord, we thank you that you have given this church the ability and the resources to make this happen. We are especially grateful, Lord, for the volunteers who gave their time to care and teach the children of this church, and for Kelton, who organized and the curriculum and put the entire program together. Lord, we just pray that he would find rest in you. We ask uh, that you would give them all rest even in the next couple of days and the seeds that were planted this past week would bear fruit, Lord, in the lives of the children. You are a God also who cares for his people and so we pray this morning for Ted Worth who is still in the hospital with lung issues. Lord, we pray for he and Cheryl that their faith would continue to increase and that you would compassionately care for them as they wait for his lungs to heal. We pray for the doctors, that they would have wisdom, and that even through this trial, they would see your faithfulness. Lord, we pray for the word. Lord, be with us as the word is preached this morning, and may it, too, plant seeds in our lives. Amen. You may be seated. What is it that makes a good leader? or even makes a leader? Uh, I pondered that question this week, and so a quick Google search revealed that there are more articles and opinions than I could personally sift through in a short amount of time. There have been multiple books written, and people pay money to develop themselves 
and others into better leaders. Qualities such as making the hardest choices, right? Ambition, courage, boldness, confidence, a visionary, communication. The list is endless depending on who you listen to and how they nuance it. There are articles and opinions out there that tell us that emotional intelligence is a must-have for a leader, right? The individual needs a high emotional IQ to be personable with others. Why is having good leadership so important? Well, people need someone to follow. First and foremost, we as people desire to follow someone. It's in our nature to follow those, then, who command our attention, who tell us and say things that, oh yeah, that that resonates with me. A leader with a charge-ahead, can-do attitude will have certain effects on an organization. The world recognizes that as the leader goes, so go the people. A leader, a good leader, according to the world, is someone who's innovative, right? And it has that effects on the people under them. I mean, look at companies that started out like Apple or Nike. The DNA of the leader is still permeated throughout that company. As the leader goes, so go the people. And when a group of people realize that this is true, right, from teachers in the classroom to fathers and mothers in the home, when people realize this, the, the, the group of people is, can be more cohesive and accomplish more together as they follow their leader. They empower the leader, and the, the leader empowers them, and it becomes mutually beneficial. This morning, we come again to two separate psalms, Psalm 20 and Psalm 23, where we will see this morning that it is God's people They know that as the leader goes, so go they. But it isn't in a great worldly leader where they put their trust. No, their confidence is in the promises of God, the promises that he has made to that leader. And he leads them with the tenderness of a caring shepherd. The leader of God's people isn't like the leader of the world. No, he is anointed by God and trusts in God and is cared for by God. If you are a note taker, the title of the sermon is this, and the big idea. In Christ, God saves and cares for his people. In Christ, God saves and cares for his people. The three points that we'll cover are a prayer for faithfulness, response of hope, and in Uh, Point three, God cares, which is chapter 23. So as we work our way through the text, I'd like you to consider the following question. Am I trusting in the faithful king and caretaker of my soul? Consider that question. Am I, where I'm sitting at this morning, trusting in the faithful king and caretaker of my soul? as is our tradition. If you have an ESV Bible, it will make it easier. Uh, Let's read Psalm chapter 20 out loud together. Psalm chapter 20, I hope you are there. Uh, We will start in verse 1 and read out loud together. 
May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. Selah. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's look now at the first point, a prayer for faithfulness. Psalm 20 was written to be sung by the people of God, and the first portion of the psalm is a prayer for the protection and success of the king. You can see that the word may is repeated seven times in these first five verses. This emphasizes the petitional aspect of these verses. The singers of this psalm were asking God specifically to protect the king and for his success. The the personal pronoun we see used 11 times in these verses is you or your. So so who is this individual? Well, verse 6 clues us in that this is indeed the, the king, the anointed one. As the people of God, they were singing a prayer on behalf of the king. Now, this, the, the psalm isn't clear, so we don't know what the original writing was for. We aren't told, well, it was this battle at this day at this time. No, it's just generally this is what the people of God would come together and sing on behalf of the king. It very well could have been before a specific battle that David was going to be involved in. Or maybe it was just something that they did before wartime. But what we do know is that this is the people of God praying on behalf of their leader, the leader of their nation, but also their religious leader. That God would support him, that God would help him, that God would protect him. The people knew that as the leader goes, so go they. Especially for the people of God. David, David was the chosen king, right? God had chosen him to represent God to the people. Chosen by God to rule. So throughout scripture, God makes covenants with his people. We've talked about them, right? The Mosaic covenant was one that we just spent some time in Joshua looking back at. A covenant is a promise between God and man. That what God has promised, God will accomplish. And as the history of salvation unfolds, the covenants in Scripture progress. When we talk about God's promise or his anointing of David, we are talking about the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God established to David. So let's take a look at that this morning because it it helps us understand our text this morning. I hope you can read that. That is very small for me. But follow along with me as I read. 
this is 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17, where we find the Davidic covenant. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So the, the Davidic covenant was between God and David, saying, David, your family will reign forever. You will sit, or your heir will sit on the throne forever. There would be nothing that could remove him from that place. So in Psalm 20, the people of God are singing for the protection, the help, the support, and the blessing of the chosen king of God. They're asking something that God has already promised to do. The people know that if God is with them and he is with the king, then their victory in whatever battle they're entering into is a sure thing. And David... David was a great tactician, we know this. He was a great wartime king. The kingdom expanded under his rule. God's favor was on him, and it was on the nation. And through the Davidic covenant, the people knew that David's salvation, David's blessing, would be theirs. It was through the promises of God to David that the people of God would be saved from their enemies. Look at the requests in Psalm 20 that the people make for the king. That he would be answered on the day of trouble in verse 1, and that he would find protection once again in verse 1. That he would have help and support in verse 2. That the Lord would remember his sacrifices. And in verse 4, they pray that he would be given the desires of his heart. Then look at verse 5. They cry out for the king to be saved. They, they desire to take joy in his salvation. That's what we see in verse 5. Their prayer is that no matter the situation that David finds himself in, or the king, that God would save him. Now, if God saved the king, he would save his people. His victory would be the people's victory. His salvation, their salvation. 
What a great reminder this is for us. See, David and the covenant, the Davidic covenant, wasn't the end. It was just a stopping point in the redemptive story of God. It points us as readers towards the new covenant, the the eternal son of God who would reign forever on the throne because David died. David's son died. And so it points us as the reader to Jesus Christ. It is about, this psalm is about the trouble that he faced on the cross, the help that he needed from God and ultimately his salvation. Yes, Jesus needed to be saved. Not maybe in the sense that we would refer to, but we all know the story of Jesus on the cross, right? He cried out that God would deliver him, but he died. He ended up dying on the cross. So so what must we conclude, that that God failed? No. In, In true fashion, God works through the opposite of what we in our human understanding think. For it was through dying that true salvation could be found. God did answer Jesus on his day of trouble. And his answer was, be faithful in your obedience, even to the point of death. And Jesus was, and God saved him. See, this is how God saves people. He saves people through death. To be a Christian means that you're willing to die. And as Scripture highlights for us, to be a Christian means that we're willing to die to our sin. Romans 6, 11 says, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So to be a Christian means that you are willing to pursue salvation through the death of your sin putting it off day after day, dying to it day after day, doing whatever it takes to kill it. When it becomes known to you, you go to great lengths to eradicate it. And Jesus' victory is our victory. In Psalm 20, that victory was signaled at the end of verse 5. We see this idea of banners and a standard that are raised. These would have been raised at the end of a battle. When when one side was victorious, their banners and standards would be raised, and it would signify the advancement of the kingdom. Jesus' victory over sin on the cross was the standard of victory. For he was raised on the cross and rose from the dead three days later and now rules and reigns over his kingdom. Jesus is the king ruling and reigning over his people, the church. Now, we don't sing or pray to him, right, as Psalm 20, as if the victory is yet to happen. No, the songs that we sing as a church look back that God did deliver Jesus, that, God, that Jesus' victory was sure and true, and that he was victorious on that day. And so their response, the people's response that we see in verses 6 through 8, can be ours as well. So we see the people's response of hope. In verses 6 through 8, we have this response of hope. In these sections of verses, we have one of the most well-known 
uh, verses in Scripture. I think it's in the context of our whole chapter, though, that we have to understand this verse. Right? Verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Right? This is a, a, a verse that you would see on a fridge or a wall. I think there was even a popular 90s Christian song made out of it. Maybe it was later than the 90s, but it all starts blending together. <laughs> but it's in the context of this chapter that we can understand even more f- uh, the depth of what this verse actually means. It is the character of God, of Yahweh, that has gripped the writer. In verse 6, the voice transitions away from the people, praying for the king, and we see the response of the king who has been faithfully prayed for. The prayer of the people encourages him. It causes him to look to the Lord, and it drills down and gives him hope in the promises of God. It gives David hope in the promises of God. It reminds him of God's promises. So what is that promise? Well, it's the Davidic covenant, that God would be with the family of David forever. So that whatever battle, whatever trial lay in front of him, he could take full confidence that God had promised victory. So then we come to verse 7. And there are those that we see that trust in the weapons of war. But the people of God will trust in the name of God. A, A name that is full of meaning. A name that signifies that he is the eternal creator, that he will make good on his promises, that he will deliver his people. And so victory was a sure thing because it was based on the promises of God and it was based on his character. No, they they weren't trusting in their great fighting ability. They, They weren't trusting in their weapons of war, their chariots, but in the God who had promised victory to his chosen king. The the confidence of the people of God was in the character of God and what God had promised he would deliver. This is a verse about the confidence in the name of the Lord, but it's also about the confidence in the promises of God. Verse 8 says that the enemies of God's people collapse but the people of God are able to stand upright because of who God is and what he has promised to them. What promises of God keep you upright? What promises of God do you trust in day after day? I know that we and I love to claim God's blessing, God's right promises of good, good health, prosperity. See, I wonder if that's taking it too far. For, for us, on this side of the cross, God hasn't promised us military victory. He hasn't promised us physical health. He hasn't promised us a physical kingdom. He hasn't promised us an eternal nation. Even more specifically, he hasn't promised us a happy life, an easy marriage, obedient children, financial security, or whatever else the American dream has promised. No, what we have been promised is seen through the cross. The promises we can claim are made real through the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ, 
So, so what has he promised us as Christians? Well, one I would like to highlight is John 16:33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So one of God's promises through Christ is what? We're going to have trouble. We'll have trouble, but he'll give peace. The world will bring trouble, but he has overcome that. So, so don't think that this life is going to be easy as a Christian. Yes, we'll have peace in Christ, but the world brings trouble. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. In Christ, we are the recipients of his victory. As he has gone, so go we. Other places in the New Testament, we are promised wisdom if we ask for it in James. We are promised that our salvation is secure in Jesus, in John 18. And in Matthew 28, Jesus promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. Now, none of these promise an easy life. They promise his faithfulness to his people. We are the beneficiaries of the new covenant, united into Christ, and his reward is our reward. His life is our life. We go as he goes. We need to be then very aware that we are easily sucked into believing that salvation in Christ looks like a better, easier life. And then when, when, when life gets hard, it must not be that I'm doing it right. It must be that God's punishing me or that I, maybe God's failed. No, hardships are just part of this life. They are just as sure as a promise of your life in heaven. So I wonder what our life as Christians would look like if we spent time meditating on the promises that God has made to us as believers, promises that are ours sure in Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that it would be beneficial for our spiritual well-being to do this, that our view of this world would become more accurate if we did this, if we understood what is ours truly and what has been promised to us, I'm convinced that our faith in God would grow. Another verse that considers the promises of Jesus or looks at a promise of Jesus is in Matthew 11. And it's one of my favorites. The, the, the promise of Jesus is that take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is his guarantee. This is who he is. That when we put on his burden, it is easy and it is light. The promise of Jesus is rest for your soul. Trusting in the promises of God looks like taking on the burden of Christ. And it is in that that we will find rest. As <clears throat> Bilbo Baggins acknowledges it is easy to feel like we are, there is too little butter spread out over too much bread and rest is what we actually need. And the people of God are called to find rest in who God is. When we call upon the name of the Lord, the king will answer. 
He will answer and he will be faithful because he cares for his people. So this leads us to the final point today and probably the most famous chapter in all of Scripture, Psalm 23. Let's read Psalm 23 out loud together again. If you have it in your, in your uh, Bible, we will begin. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm is incredibly easy to read and gloss over and to go on about our day without actually ever pondering the depths of it. It is so familiar to us that it's just kind of like common knowledge. I mean, we've probably all heard it since we were small children. We, we hear it at funerals. I mean, even those who do not attend church would be familiar with this text this morning. One thing that we do when we encounter these, these texts that are so familiar is we just gloss over them, right? We, we assume that we just know it all. We know it so well that we can just, yeah, read it and move on. Yeah, God's a shepherd. That's great. I love it. Psalm 23 is much more than a comforting passage to read at a funeral. This psalm is for those who are part of the people of God, who find themselves in covenant with him. For Psalm, 20 deal, psalm 23 deals with the tender care of God towards the king. So this, this chapter fits well with Psalm 20. In 20, the people pray for God's faithfulness towards the king, but here, the king looks to God as not just faithful, but as a tender shepherd who cares for him. In verses 20, uh, 1 through 4, Yahweh, God, cares for the king as a shepherd would care for a sheep. And then in verses 5 and 6, Yahweh is a host for the king, and the enemies have been subdued. Now, once again, we don't really know when this psalm was written, but the author is David, and David had firsthand experience as a shepherd, and it's well documented throughout the, uh, the book of First and Second Samuel. We also know that David had firsthand experience as a warrior and king. So this psalm was written as a reflection of, of both of those, uh, as a shepherd and as a warrior. David spent his youth caring for the sheep in his father's pastures. And so it was, it was this firsthand knowledge that he penned this psalm. And he was also the king of the mighty nation of Israel. But what we see here in Psalm 23 is that this king, this mighty warrior, was trusting in God as his shepherd. And so before we apply this psalm to us, we need to recognize that this psalm is once again about the king of Israel. It is about David. 
David is the king who is being shepherded by God. He is being cared for by God. It is the king who God tenderly cares for, and therefore, this psalm is about Jesus. It is then and only then that we can step back as the readers and apply it to us. It is in the context of the king that this Psalm 23 uh, uh, comes to life for us today. The, the, The psalmist looks at the provision of Yahweh as a shepherd who has given him all that he needs. See, sheep are animals who do well having someone protect them. Now, this psalm isn't about the helplessness of sheep as much as it is about the good care of the shepherd, right? We've probably all heard, and if you haven't, sheep aren't very intelligent, so I'm told. But this psalm highlights the care of the shepherd more than it highlights how, uh, the character of the sheep. So when we read it, that's where we need to focus our att- attention, is on the care and the character of the shepherd himself. David says that this this shepherd makes him lie down in green pastures, that he has been led to still waters. What is this telling us? Well, it tells us that David finds his contentment in God. He finds his peace in God because God is the one caring for him. Sheep are easily spooked and, and need a quiet place to eat their food. They are defenseless animals who enjoy the quiet, finer things of life. Yahweh, God, has the best interest of his sheep. And this sheep, David, is content in his care. Which we also see this care is restorative. The soul of the king we see in Psalm 23 is revived. How is this done? Well, last week we saw how this was done. David reflected on the law, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God restores the soul of the king through his word. And because of God, the king's soul is revived. And it is in the path of righteousness, then, that the king is led. For the sake of the name of God. This path is the path that leads the sheep safely to their destination. Righteousness isn't the name of the path. It's the place they are going. It is the destination that matters, not the path that is traveled. And the shepherd is leading the sheep along that path. It is even in the valley of the shadow of death that David is cared for. Of all the imagery in this psalm, this is some of the most poignant. See, death was always right around the corner for David. He was always involved in wars and battles. He he had family members die, children die, and good friends never return home. Death was imminent in his life, just as it was for Jesus. Jesus lived his life knowing full well that he would die on the cross. The purpose of his life was death. The valley of the shadow of death was always looming before the Son of God. And Jesus didn't shy away from that valley. He willingly walked that valley and offered up his life. He conquered the valley of the shadow of death, and through his victory, we too no longer need to fear. Even though death is always in front of us, 
it gets closer every day we live. Family members who die, our own death, or even death that isn't physical, right? Death of relationships, death of hopes and dreams. Death is what is promised. It is sure in this life. It was promised in the Garden of Eden. It is sure as taxes, right? Death and taxes. But for those who are in Christ, death doesn't define us. Yes, it's a reality. Yes, it happens. But Jesus declared that death would no longer reign over this world. That life, eternal life, can be had through his victory. All one must do is believe. For those who are in Christ, he declares himself to be the good shepherd. Now, death is a topic that our society doesn't want to think about. It, it is largely ignored in the culture that we live in, or um, grandi- made, made more grandiose with shows such as The Walking Dead. Right? People would much rather talk about sex or politics or the past even than death. Death, though, for the people of God, shouldn't be something that is feared or ignored. The the Puritans, uh, who um, were a religious group, Christians, that lived hundreds of years ago, did a lot of thinking and talking about death. They believed that it was death that was the sum of one's life that could be seen. It was in death that you defined where your hope truly was. Were you going to go willingly to the arms of your Savior, or were you going to cling to the things of this world? If the end was well, then all would be well. In death, the deep faith of a person can be seen. Because death isn't the end. It isn't the end of life that is the valley of... No, we face this valley, the valley of the shadow of death, at various points in our lives, when life seems hopeless, when there seems to be no way out, or when evil continues to haunt us in the form of sin and temptation. Those valleys, they're long, they're difficult, they're hard. What should we who are on this side of the cross do? I think it's too often that we feel guilt, we feel shame for even struggling with it, right? Oh, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I shouldn't be here, right? Christians don't struggle. Or maybe I should just let go and let God. Or if, I, if, people, if people knew how, how, where I was at, they would look down on me, right? They, w- they wouldn't appreciate the deep darkness that's in me and, and that I'm dealing with. But friends, this is simply untrue. The, the valley of the shadow of death only comes before true life. And we have a shepherd who not only knows how we feel and empathizes with us in it, but has actually done something about it. Look at John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, Jesus knew that the valley of the shadow of death comes before life. Suffering, death, comes before true life can come. And the shepherd loves his sheep. He is willing to sacrifice himself for their well-being, to give up his own life for theirs. 
A true shepherd is one who will walk through the valley of the shadow of death with you, not leave you in it by yourself. And that is what Christ has done. And as verse 4 says, the sheep can fear no evil because the instruments of the shepherd are there to protect them. Right? The, the rod and the staff are a comfort to the sheep, a comfort and a, a, a corrective tool. They are used to correct the sheep and to protect the sheep from predators. Psalm 23 then concludes with verses 5 and 6. That in the presence of the king's enemies, a table will be prepared. That he will be anointed with oil, which is, is a sign of blessing. That the king will be blessed and goodness and mercy will follow him in the house of God, and he will dwell forever. This verse reminds me of the, the, the scene in Revelation, the, ban- the banquet that will be prepared for the people of God. These verses hammer home the point that God is tenderly caring for his chosen king and for all those who are in him. See, you and I are not the king. Ephesians 1.3, though, reminds us that whoever is in the king receives the blessing of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So while we aren't the king, we aren't David, we aren't Jesus, we receive the blessing of Christ that he has obtained. We have his blessing. As he has gone, so go we. His inheritance is our inheritance. God cares for us, not because we're strong, not because we're mighty, not because we have um, this great ability that we have something to offer God, but he cares for us because we are in Christ. We possess the inheritance of the king. And we can know that our hope is in that good shepherd. So as we conclude, I'd like you to ponder this week, who is it that is caring for your soul? Who is it that you turn to for salvation throughout the week? Remember that it isn't the path that's walked or the day that defines you. It's the end. It's the destination. So while there will be bumps along the road, there will be valleys of the shadow of death. It's what, def- what defines us is how we finish. Or we, do we finish in Christ or not? Do we hope in him for our salvation? Do you hope in the king of the universe that, ha- that has promised to care for you as a shepherd would sheep? Or are you hoping in something else? Your power, your intelligence, your work ethic, your personality. Mission, my, my prayer for you, for each of you, is that you would look to Jesus who cares deeply for your souls. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are a king who cares for us, who cares for his people. Father God, I pray that we would recognize your character and that we would continue to know and remember that as you have gone, so go we. And may that be our hope. May that be our confidence. 
And as we come to communion now, we just pray, Lord, that our hearts would be renewed with that in the name of your Son. Amen.